good morning, Amarillo Fellowship, one of my favorite places. I feel like I'm right at home, and you guys are amazing. You know, you guys are so good, you ought to have four or five Sunday morning services. Man, you guys are on it. This is a great place. Pastor Richie and Pastor Pam, love you guys, been friends for a long, long time. Uh, Your family, uh, your staff is amazing, every single one of them. And you guys are blessed to be in a church like this that is moving, that is growing, that is expanding. And uh, worship, uh, Pam, the worship is incredible. You guys have done an amazing job. Give, yeah, her and Christian, the whole team, amazing. And so again, just so good to be with you guys and and um, man, I hope that uh, you're ready for the Word of God. Are you guys ready this morning? You know, every time we have the opportunity to open up the Word of God, it's an opportunity for your life to be changed. A lot of times we get into a routine of coming into church, and, and we just come and we go, and we go and leave the same. Don't ever allow yourself to come to church and leave the same, but allow yourself to come in and take at least one principle and let that be something you work on every single week. Every week, what I really drive home to our people is that I say, hey, bring your journal. Bring your journal with you. And I want them to take notes, uh, even if it's one sentence, one phrase, one thought. But what I do is I tell them, work on that all week long. Can you imagine what would happen that if you would take one small principle from the Word of God, just something simple and small, but you applied it to your life in something different every single week in 52 weeks. Can you imagine how much you advance spiritually? And so that's the power of the church, the power of the Word of God. And this morning, I want to share something with you that I want to transform your life and change uh, drastically. You know, uh, Kay and I celebrated our 38th wedding anniversary in January. And uh, she is a whole lot older than I am. I, I, you know, I must have married at a really young age. And uh, that's not true. But, but, uh, but, you know, I thought, you know, 38 years, man, we need to really celebrate that. So I took her to the nicest restaurant in Albuquerque, a uh, very, very expensive restaurant. It's one of those that you'd go to about once every five years. And so we went there, and, and so we sat down and just really anticipating a great, great time together, a great meal. When the waiter came over, he was so full of excitement, and he just was like, he couldn't wait to wait on us. And so he said, sir, what would you like to have tonight? And I said, well, I have chosen the bone-in ribeye, and the moment I said that, he went, mm, 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 mm. do you know what you just chose? He said, you chose the house favorite. The house favorite, brilliant, that was brilliant of you. What would you like as your side? I said, well, I, I'm looking here at the menu, and I think I would like the bacon-wrapped Brussels sprouts. Oh, oh, oh. You just chose what would complement that, that steak more than anything else. You couldn't have chose any better. Then he turned to my wife and he said, what can I get you, please? She said, I'm going to take the sea bass. He stepped back. He looked to one side and the next, and he leans in like he's going to tell her a secret. And he says, ma'am, do you know what you just did? You just chose what was voted as the number one best dish in our city. That's what you just chose. What can I get you as a side? She said, well, I'll take the green chili cream corn. Oh, oh, my absolute favorite, brilliant, brilliant. And then he walks away. I looked at Kay and I said, wow, Kay. I said, we really did good in our food selection. I feel really good about that. Wow. It was a couple of weeks later, I was in the atrium of our church and I was 
talking to a, a young man, and I found out he worked at that restaurant. And I said, hey, I want to ask you a question. Do all of you guys do that? Do all of you attach a word to whatever you're, you're ordering? And he laughed, and he said, you know, when we're in training, they teach us to add different phrases to different things when people are ordering just to help them feel good about themselves. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, we're having to turn waitstaff into therapists just to help us feel good about our food that we're going to eat. My <laughs> word. You know, but it is really amazing because the simple words of a waiter, the very simple words, he already created an amazing experience for, for us before we ever even tasted the food. It's the power of words. You know, we're in this series right now, and, and it's the series of words and how we, we speak to people and how it affects those that are around us. You know, words, words can inspire a nation. Words can make or break a marriage. Words can create confidence or insecurity. It's all in the power of words because there is life and death in the power of the tongue and we must be careful in what we say. You know, the ancient Greeks had communication down. They had mastered the arts. When you go back 2,000 years ago and you look at their different cities, there in the middle of every one of their cities were gigantic amphitheaters that would hold five to 6,000 people. Nightly, they would come and they would entertain the people in the community. They had singers and actors and lecturers and comedians and storytellers holding those large crowds absolutely spellbound. Historians say that probably the greatest communicators that have ever lived is not today, but it was 2,000 years ago because they had mastered it at such a high degree. The Greeks said that if you want to be a great communicator, there are three things that you must have. The first thing, you must have logos. You must have logos, and what that means is it's word, it's contents, it's a substance of what you're saying. In other words, if you don't have substance, then you're not worth listening to. The second thing the Greeks said, that if you want to be a great communicator, you must have ethos. And what that is, is where we get our word ethics. It's that word that governs our behavior. If someone is standing in front of you and they are saying something, and yet when they walk off the stage, they do not live it, those people are not worth listening to. The third way that we become great communicators and what we must have is this, this word pathos, which we get our word passion. It is intense. It is a driving emotion that we are passionate about what we're talking about. And when you're listening to someone and they are lacking the passion, there's no passion, then that person is not worth listening to. And so in this series, did I just say that? You know, we're talking about how these words affect everyone around us. What I would like to do this afternoon is I want to take us down a different path in talking about words and how words will determine what you receive from God. Your words are going to determine that. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 11 and verse 17. Here's a passage of scripture that if you've been in church very long, you'll probably be very familiar with. But as I read these words, I want you to not let your mind drift, daydream, hang with every word because I'm going to show you something that maybe you have never thought of before in this story. In verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. 
Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, here's the response that Jesus has for her, dropping down to verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, a little later, Mary hears that Jesus is even closer coming into town. And so what she does, she runs out to meet him. Verse 32 When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus wept. In verse 40, then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? And this is how he responds to Mary. So he goes to the grave of her brother, and there in verse 43, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. In reading this story, this is what I cannot understand. How can two ladies ask the very same thing and get a different response? They said the identical same words. In verse 21 and verse 32, here you look again. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 32, Mary said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But different responses from Jesus. Mary gets a lecture on the end times. But Mary touches the heart of God gets a miracle, and her brother rises from the grave. How can it be that we have someone that might be in this auditorium and they cry out to Jesus, I need you, Jesus, and how can that phrase be different from the one sitting on the front row than the one who is sitting on row number eight? How can it be the cry that comes forth when someone cries under the heavens and says, God, I need help today, and that cry of help is different from this side of the room than someone who says it on this side of the room? How can that be different in the voice or in the ears of God? How can it be different when we're sitting in a worship service like we were just sitting through? And you can feel the Spirit of God. You can feel the presence of God in this place. And where one comes into this auditorium in the middle of the worship session, that they had this God encounter, and they, they feel and sense the power of the Holy Spirit upon their life, and it's that moment of revelation and transformation. Tears are streaming down their face, and that becomes a moment that they will remember for the rest of their lives. But how can that be when the person next to them, rubbing shoulders with them, singing the same words, the same song, in the same environment, but they stand there with their hands in their pockets, they're bored out of their minds as they're mumbling the words, wondering when are they going to allow us to sit down? 
And the only answer that you can come up with is that one addresses God with mediocrity and the other one addresses God and is communicating at a pathos level because the ears of God are sensitive and tuned to the suffering and the hurting and those who are in need. You know, many years ago, when our kids were small, we had a young couple in our church that was going into ministry. They had just gotten married And so we all had dinner together, and then after dinner, our kids ran to the back room, and they were playing in the bedroom. And so the young couple and Kay and I, we went out into the den. We were eating dessert and drinking coffee, and we were talking about their future and talking about ministry. When we're in the middle of that conversation back in the back room, there was this scream from one of our children that came roaring out of the bedroom, And it scared this young man to death. He came up out of his seat with this alarmed look, and and Kay and I never flinched. We just said, it's okay, sit down, sit down. That was just my brother hit me scream. It's okay. And so a little while later, there was another scream that came from the bedroom, and again, he came up out of his chair like he was alarmed, and it frightened him, that loud scream, and Kay and I never flinched, never moved. We just said, it's okay, it's okay. That was just, I saw a spider, they'll take care of it. A little while later, there was another scream that came from the bedroom, and this time, he just stayed seated. But this time, Kay and I jumped up out of our seats and started running to the bedroom as I said, that's a hurt cry. One of our children are hurt. As an earthly father, if I'm able to discern the sound of my child's voice of hurting, how much more can your God discern the hurting and the cry of those that are in need of God? You know, sometimes the pain in which we carry is so deep that we have nothing but a cry that comes out of our voice. There have been so many times that that I have walked out of our building on Sunday mornings. In fact, I experience this almost every Sunday without fail. That after all three of our services that I'm in the atrium, I'm talking to, to hundreds of people. And in those conversations, they're very quick. But I'm hearing all of these devastations and problems and, and hurts. And many times after hearing all of that, I get in my car and I'm driving home. And there's a heaviness upon me. And I'm thinking about all of these horrendous stories of heartbreak, shattered lives, shattered marriages. And I'm wondering, how do they survive even one more day at that level of pain. It's like I can't even comprehend what it would be like to live in that day after day after day, the pain. And when we are at that level, many times you can't even verbalize a prayer. Many times all you've got is a cry that will come out of you. And at that moment, it's not that you need a sermon. You don't, you don't need counseling. You don't need good theology. It's at that deep level of pain and hurt. All you need is Jesus saying, Jesus, I need you. And you're calling upon him. Because what you're doing at that moment is you've shifted into the pathos level of where it's passion. And you're saying, God, I realize who you are, and I come to you, and God responds to the passion. You know, when you look up passion in the dictionary, it's fascinating to me. Because in the Webster Dictionary, do you know how it defines passion? Let me read it to you. The Webster Dictionary defines it as the suffering and the death of Jesus. That's the definition 
of passion because Jesus was driven with such a level of passion for you that he was willing to suffer and he was willing to die that you might receive the redemption, the miracle, the healing in which you are desperately in need of today. In James chapter 5 and verse 16, it says, Is any among you suffering? Anyone here suffering? Then he goes on and says, Let him pray. In verse 16, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What does that say? It says the effective, fervent prayer. What that means is if some prayers are effective, then we must assume that other prayers are ineffective because some will address God fervently while others will come before God with an apathetic spirit. And where, where God is responding to those that understand who they are addressing, that they are addressing the almighty God, and it brings passion within our voices that we're touching a God that is able to touch us. As you continue on in, uh, in verse 17, Elijah, Elijah that we hold in high esteem, was a man, he was a mere man, he was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was no different than any of us sitting in this room. And he prayed earnestly. Another translation said, and he prayed fervently. The effective prayer is a fervent prayer. And the definition of fervent is hot, zealous, passionate. And that's how Elijah prayed. The miracles in which he operated in. Because it was earnest, it was fervent, it was passionate. Why was King David called a man after God's own heart? It certainly wasn't because he was sinless. Because he probably had more sin than any of us in this building. He had horrendous sins in his past. And yet God called him a man after God's own heart. And the reason why is because David was able to master something that few people ever do. And what he was able to understand and master was that he came before God with a unique passion, a passion that was like any other man, that he had a passion to know God and to be in the presence of God. I want to read to you a prayer that he prayed in, one, in Psalm 109, starting with verse 1. And here King David is in, in one of the most trying moments of his life. And he says this, I give praise to you, O God. Do not be quiet, for sinners and liars have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have gathered around me with words of hate. They fight against me for no reason. I give them my love, but they speak against me in return. But I am in prayer. Whenever we are assaulted, Whenever we are under accusation, slander, lies, and hurt, our only response is not to fall, is not to fight back, but our response is, but I am in prayer. Because those five simple words will carry you through every storm of life that you go through. If you'll remember, it was December the 26th in 2004, the largest earthquake took place that has ever been recorded. It was 
three, a gigantic earthquake in the middle of the Indian Ocean. When that earthquake took place, it created a tsunami that started rising up and started moving towards the mainland. And the tsunami is traveling, listen to this, at 600 miles an hour. It was a couple of hours before the earthquake took place that there was a group of tourists that they were going out on a boat and they were going out, most of them, for the very first time on an excursion to go scuba diving. All of them had never done it before. It was all new to them. So they were glowing down into the water and they had a dive master that was leading them down to about 30 feet of water. It was while they were underneath, they were unaware of the earthquake and they were unaware of the tsunami that was headed in their direction. The dive master all of a sudden noticed something that he had never seen in hundreds of dives is that how all of the fish begin to act erratic, moving and darting in front of him and then he saw every fish stop, pointed their nose down and begin to dive deep. He said, by instinct, when I saw that, that I knew something was really wrong and to follow the fish. And he said, I pointed to the 13 divers that were with me. He started pointing down, and he wanted them to follow him, and he took them as deep as they could go. And then all of a sudden, they were hit with this tremendous current. It was a few moments later, all 13 divers surfaced, looking towards the shore, that they saw the gigantic wave that had already passed over them, hitting the mainland, wiping out everything in its path, killing over 250,000 people. It was in an interview a few days later with a dive master, asking him to go through and tell them the story of what happened. And he said, the only thing that saved our lives was by going deep. And I want to tell you this morning, the only thing that will save our lives at times, when the tsunami hits our marriage, our jobs, our finances, our children, you have to get off the surface and you have to go deep enough that you find a calm and the calm that only God can bring into your life. Our son, our oldest son, who's on staff with us at our church, when he was 17, he was a junior in high school, that he uh, had received a call of ministry upon his life, and he knew, if there was anything that he knew, that God had called him to the ministry. And he's very verbal about that. Dustin was a great athlete, outgoing, outspoken, very confident, and very well respected in his school from the Christians and the non-Christians because he was so straightforward and solid on what he believed. His senior year in the very beginning, he was taking a speech class, very excited about that, knowing that that was the beginning of honing his skills to do what he was going to do for the rest of his life, speaking in front of people. His first speech came up, it was only a five-minute speech, Again, preparing, excited about it, and he got up in front of the class, and midway through that speech, he was hit by, a, by a, uh, just this, this emotion, and, and all of a sudden, 
He could not get through it. It was like a severe panic attack that hit him. He had to stop halfway through it. He ended up walking out of the room, out of the class. It was humiliating. It was embarrassing. It devastated him. Well, it was a few weeks later, he had to give another speech, and the exact same thing happened to him. And when he walked out, he told me, ministry is done for me. I'll never go into ministry. If I can't stand in front of a small group, a small classroom, and speak to them, I'll never be able to preach the Word of God. I'm choosing another occupation. He started skipping the class every time that he was to give a speech, and he was going to fail that class his senior year. But what else also alarmed me was I started seeing this very outgoing social kid isolate, isolating from his friends, isolating from us as parents, spending more time in his room. He lost his smile, lost his joy, lost his his laughter, and I was very, very concerned, and it felt like there was nothing I could do. One night, it was a Friday night, Kay and I had gone to a movie, we were coming home late. It was about 11 o'clock that night, opened up the door and walked in, and something stopped me dead in my tracks, and there was a cold chill that came over me. And I looked over at Kay and I said, Kay, do you feel that? I said, it feels like a spirit of fear. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. It frightened me. That night when I went to bed, I tossed and I turned all night long struggling with what is this that I'm sensing? We got through the weekend and it was Monday morning when everyone was getting up, getting ready for work and school and I noticed I had not seen Dustin. Walked to his bedroom, opened the door, and there I saw him sitting on the side of his bed, sitting there in a dark room, the blinds closed, tears streaming down his face. He's shaking his head, and he said, I can't face today. I can't go. I cannot make it to school. What I saw that day was a shell of a kid of what he was just a few months earlier, a kid that's losing weight, slipping into deep depression, not knowing what to do. I did everything in my power that morning to get him up and help him to get dressed and get him out the door to go to school. The moment that he left for school that day, I grabbed Kay by the hand. We jumped into our car and we went to the church. And there we walked to the front of the auditorium and I laid down on the front of the floor of that auditorium and I started banging my fist on the floor and I began to pray at a level I had never prayed in my life because this is what I knew. I knew that our son's life and his future was in the balance. What I knew was that Satan was wanting to silence his voice for the rest of his life, and I wasn't going to let it take place. For two long, solid hours, I beat my fist on that floor, and I prayed with everything that I had within me. After two hours, I sat up on the floor totally exhausted. But there was this calm and this peace that is hard to even explain. And I turned to Kay and I said, Kay, whatever this was, it's broken. Whatever this is, I know that it's gone. We went home and I waited that afternoon with anticipation of when Dustin would come home, what kind of day had he had. When he walked into the front door, there was a smile on his face. As he walked toward me, he said, Dad, don't know what happened today, but he said, today was a turnaround day for me. 
This was the best day I've had in a long, long time. And it never, ever returned again. Today, he's a powerful preacher of the word. Today, he travels all over the world preaching. But Satan wanted to silence him in the very beginning of his calling. You see, I want to tell you today, don't let the storm overshadow your God. Don't let it happen. This is exactly what the disciples did on one occasion when they were in the boat. They were out on the Sea of Galilee and they got caught in a storm. Small boat, probably not well built, knowing that they could be overtaken by waves and they could die in the middle of that sea. They are frightened for their lives. It has become to a critical moment and yet Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat. And they go at this critical moment and they shake him and they wake him up and they throw an accusation at God because they shake him and they say, Jesus, don't you even care about us? Don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you even care? Sounds a little familiar probably to most of us that when we find ourselves in those situations where it feels like life is caving in and we can't do anything and and everything is going wrong and it's the finances, it's the marriage, it's our children, it's our job and we're saying, God, where are you in all of this? I thought you would honor me because I go to church every single week and we throw the same accusations at God. Don't you even care where we are? But again, they allow the storm to become bigger than their God because their God was in the middle of the boat, in the middle of the situation with them, just like God is in your boat when you are a born-again believer. And we can never allow the storm to become bigger than our God. It's the reason why on another occasion that Jesus had gone to a house where a little girl had died. People are mourning and weeping and wailing on the outside. A very sad, sad situation. Jesus walks in and he makes the statement that the little girl is only sleeping when everyone knows that the girl is dead. And they laughed at him. They mocked him. They made fun of him. But do you remember what Jesus did? What Jesus did was he cleared the room. He said, I want you to clear the room. I want you to get all of them out. What Jesus was doing at that moment, he was shutting the door on the outside noise, shutting the door on doubt, shutting the door on the naysayers, shutting the door on the worry, and he shut it out, and he raised that girl from the dead because my God is bigger than any storm or any problem in our lives. I want you to remember the attitude of King David. Again, going back to what I read to you. My marriage is shattered, but I am in prayer. I'm jobless today. My child has rebelled. My health is failing, but I am in prayer. My child has died, and my world has caved in, but I am in prayer. Because the moment you open your mouth, the power of the word, the power that God has given to us, the moment you open your mouth and you address God in heaven, it activates heaven 
heaven becomes activated and it begins to move upon you in that very moment. You know, there were many, you know, there were many, many trips that Jesus took his disciples on. One day, Jesus woke up his disciples and he said, I want you to follow me. And he did not tell them where he was leading them. On this day, he took them on the longest journey that they had ever been. It was a 28-mile walk. As they had been walking for miles and miles and miles, there was a murmuring that started happening in the back of the line. Disciples saying, why are we going so far? Why doesn't he just tell us where we're going? Why do we have to go this far? Where are we going? And as they continue to walk, one of the disciples spoke up and they said, I know exactly where we're going. This road leads nowhere else but Caesarea Philippi. Another disciple said, Caesarea Philippi, why would Jesus ever take us there, the most wicked, vile place on the planet? Why would he take us there? Well, Caesarea Philippi was built by Philip. He's the son of Herod the Great. Philip wanted his own kingdom, his own palace, his own thing. And so he called this brand new city that he was building Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea in honor of Caesar, and Philip in honor of himself. He had located one of the most beautiful places in that region, and there was a gigantic, tall uh, wall of, of rock. And in the side of this rock cliff was this huge opening. It was a cave where an underground spring poured out of it. Six weeks ago, I sat in that exact spot, absolutely stunning, and where Philip had built his palace right next to the cave and a temple right next to the palace. And they worshipped the, the god of Pan. That was their number one god. It was that creature that was half man and half goat, a disgusting sexual creature that they believed that would rise up out of the depths of hell and they believed the cave was the entrance of hell and that their God would come up out of hell, out of the cave two times a year to bring fertility and blessing upon the people. It was during those two times of the year that they celebrated at the pagan temple. Their celebration fanned the sexual flame of prostitution and orgies and every kind of possible perversion. And this had become the most wicked, vile place on the planet. The Jews, as they were walking toward Caesarea Philippi, knowing that Jews would never come here, what is Jesus doing? As they came into the outskirts, it's believed that Jesus came and he sat on a rock as they entered into the city. And they gathered in front of him Behind him is this gigantic cliff with the big entrance behind him that is believed at that time in that city that that's the opening to hell. 28 miles to sit here with his disciples. And he asked them, Men, who do people say that I am? 
One disciple spoke up and said, some call you John the Baptist. Someone else said, some call you Elijah. Some believe that you're Jeremiah. But then Jesus changed it and pointed at his disciples. And he said, but who do you say that I am? It's that famous moment sitting here at Caesarea Philippi that Peter opens his mouth and he says, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When he said that, Jesus said, Peter, you're absolutely right. That that is revelation to you. And upon this rock, I will build my church. He was not saying that I'm going to build my church upon you, Peter. But I'm going to build my church upon the foundation of your thought process. The revelation of knowing who I am. That any man, any woman who knows that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you know that without doubt, it's the revelation that brings the power of God upon your life in every situation. Then, when he says that, he sets back and he points to the cave behind him known as the entrance to hell. And he says to them, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. He led them 28 miles to let them know that evil places are not to be shunned, that they're not to be avoided because it just seems like it's too difficult. What he wanted them to know that the darker the night, the greater the light. The darker it is, the more power of God will flow in those situations. What he wanted them to know is that I, Jesus, have led you to the most wicked place on the planet to let you know that I have come to shatter the darkness and to set the captives free. That's what I've come to do. You know, I run into Christian people all the time. They're all in my church, and I hear them all the time as they're coming up and saying, Pastor, man, the devil is on my back, and he just seems to be beating me to a pulp. I'm under attack day after day after day. Satan is just bombarding me. He's destroyed my marriage. He's destroying my kids. He's taken away my joy. And when I listen to Christian people say those things, I think we sound like we're a limping, hurting, devastated church that Christ never created us to be. But when Jesus pointed to what was known at that time as the entrance of hell, He was wanting us to know that nothing will invade us. You see, the gates of hell are not invading you. You are invading the gates of hell. That you are the one that's kicking in the gates of hell, moving in and taking back what Satan has stolen from you. And what God wants you to know this morning is that he's bigger than any storm that you'll ever go through. That it's all about the words in which you speak. You see, we've been talking about words, the power of words, the power of words. The greatest words you will ever speak is when you begin to address the Creator, the Creator of the universe, the one that can change your life, the one that can change your marriage, that can transform you wherever you are. Don't ever allow the storm to be bigger than your God. So I'd like to ask you if you'd bow your heads for a moment. And I want to pray with you this morning. And what I know is that every time we gather like this, that there is a room full 
of people that are hurting, that have been shattered, that are wounded, that are confused. There have been so many times that I've been in that situation. And what I'm going to ask is, if you've walked into this room and you're up against a situation, you don't know what to do. A situation that is haunting you, hurting you, wounding you. And you need God. You need God to show up this morning. Why would you ever allow yourself to spend the time getting up, getting dressed, driving to church, sitting through this hour, and experience nothing? But what if you've come this morning and you're in need? And you're broken. You're hurting. There is something that has gone wrong. You've lost your job. Your child has rebelled. And you're just needing a miracle. Your health is failing. I'm going to ask that if you need God to do a miracle in your life, you feel like hell has invaded your life, but you're ready to stand and say, I'm going to invade the gates of hell and take back what was taken. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet real quick, and I want to pray with you. If you're here today and you're hurting, you're here today and you need a miracle, you're here today and something is shattered in your life, this has to be more than a simple little prayer. This has to be something, a revelation like Peter had, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That when you pray this prayer, it's the beginning but you walk it, you believe it, you fight for it. It may mean that you go home and you go deep until you find the calm. 